Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2016 AWP conference in Los Angeles. The recording features Michelle Blankenship, Kirker Butler, Mitchell Jackson, Angela Newman, and Christine Sneed. You will now hear Angela Newman provide introductions. Thanks for coming out. This panel is called The Changing Face of Book Publicity. I'm going to make a brief introduction, then I'm going to introduce the panel. We have a panel of four novelists, including myself, and an independent publicist on the end, Michelle Blankenship. She'll do a brief presentation. The panel will answer a couple questions for me, and then I'll open it up to a Q&A in case you have any questions. So as you're coming up as a writer, a book contract can seem like a dream. No matter how much of a purist you are in terms of your art, most of us want to be published so that we can be read or we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. The book contract can be a confirmation that the sacrifices you've made to be a writer have not been in vain, and I'm sure everybody in here has made their own sacrifices. But publishing is a rapidly changing industry. Technology has challenged the traditional routes to market for books, and there's good and bad to that. Writers have more ways to see their words in print, from traditional New York houses and serious independent presses to university presses and self-publishing. We also have more ways than ever of getting attention for those books in print and online. But the downside is that with so much more going on, it's harder to get attention. It's harder to stand out. And the resources that have traditionally introduced your book to the world, the marketing and publicity machines of publishers, are stretched thin, both time-wise and money-wise. It's a painful intersection of art and business, with the majority of a company's dollars going to the books that, that they will gamble will make a profit. It's a different picture than that of years ago, maybe 30 years ago, when an editor might invest in a young author with the intention of growing together as the books matured and when it mattered a little less if your first couple books sold well. Everyone understood the relationship was there for the long haul. As a result of these shifts, authors are now expected to take on many of the tasks of getting attention for their own books. And I've tried to draw a distinction here between marketing and publicity. Many of you are expected to handle marketing on your own, and marketing involves anything that can be paid for, any kind of social media, and what you can do for yourself. Publicity is a different story. Some people are really good at marketing. They're very good at self-promotion, and they, they are active on social media. They're already blogging, and this comes very naturally to them. Some authors are more introverted and, and have trouble with self-promotion. I am one of those people. But more importantly, it can be really hard to try to develop a marketing sensibility when you really want most of your extra time to go to writing. Most of us have day jobs and do something else. But publicity is a whole different story even from marketing. The goal of publicity is unpaid third-party endorsements, which carry a lot of weight. So we're talking reviews, invitations to events, interviews, anything that doesn't have to be paid for and depends upon the relationship of media to a publicist. So the difference between marketing and publicity is marketing you can do yourself or you can pay for. Publicity, it's very hard to do for yourself because unless you already have been involved in publicity, you don't have the relationships with media that open the door. Media look to publicists, not authors, to help them find relevant material for the venues. Media is operating under their own set of priorities, and a publicist's job is to maintain the kind of relationships with media so that when publicists reach out with a story, the media person trusts that the publicist is not wasting their time. They're realistically matching the venue to the author and book, which is a winning situation for everyone. We have four novelists as I said, including me, who've used an independent publicist. Many of us have used Michelle, so that's why I've asked her to join us today. I've used Michelle. She was my in-house publicist when my first book came out, and she was the independent publicist I used when my second book came out. So I'll introduce myself briefly, I'll introduce all of you, and then I will turn it over to Michelle for her presentation. My name is Angela Newman. I'm a fiction writer. I teach creative writing at Stanford, and I run the Napa Valley Writers Conference with my co-director. My first book came out in 2007 with Harcourt, 
that's where Michelle was my in-house publicist. My second book came out in 2014. It was a novel, came out from Houghton Mifflin. I'm a bit of a cautionary tale. I'm one of those orphan authors who ended up with an editor that didn't choose my book and a publicity machine that was sympathetic to me but whose resources went to other places. So I supplemented the in-house publicity machine with Michelle and I was very happy with the result. That's probably enough about me. This is, on, on the far end is Kirker Butler. Kirker is a two-time Emmy-nominated writer and producer who's written for The Family Guy, The Cleveland Show, Gallivant, and Life in Pieces. His debut novel, Pretty Ugly, was published in 2015 by Thomas Dunn, an imprint of St. Martin's Press. He's also the author of the graphic novel, Blue Agave and Worm. Additionally, Kirker has contributed to The Huffington Post, The Academy Awards, and E! News Daily. He lives here in L.A. This is Christine Sneed. Christine's fourth book and second story collection, The Virginity of Famous Men, will be published in September by Bloomsbury. Her first story collection, Portraits of a Few of the People I've Made Cry, won AWP's 2009 Grace Paley Prize in Fiction and was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Award. Her novels are Paris, he said, and Little Known Facts. This is Mitchell Jackson. His debut novel is The Residue Years, and it was published to wide critical acclaim. He's received numerous awards, most recently the Whiting Award, so congratulations. The Residue Years was also a finalist for the Flaherty Dunnan First Novel Prize, the Penn Hemingway, and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. His work has, has appeared in the New York Times Book Review Salon and Tin House, and he has a collection of essays, right, Survival Math, coming out from Scribner in 2017. And here we have our superstar independent publicist, Michelle Blankenship. <laughs> Michelle has worked as an in-house publicist for 16 years at John Wiley & Sons, Picador, Harcourt Trade, and Bloomsbury. And she has represented fiction writers, poets, and nonfiction writers. Um, some of her in-house authors were Gunter Grass, Jessamyn Ward, Lubslawa, Simborska, Umberto Eco, Kay Gibbons, Roger Angel, Charles Simic, Ursula Le Guin, Rory Stewart, and me. <laughs> she served as director of publicity for Harcourt and also associate director of publicity at Bloomsbury. Uh, in April of 2013, she went freelance, and in that capacity, she's worked with Jessamyn Ward, again, Rebecca Walker, Amor McBride, Judy Foreman, Mitchell Jackson, and Barney Frank. I'm going to turn it over to Michelle, who's going to address you briefly, I think, from the table. You can stand okay. up here if you'd yeah. like. And then I'll ask the panel a series of questions and then open it up. Thank you. Okay. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay. I talk loudly as it is, so let me know if I'm going too loud. So just when you thought you had completed 95% of the work you needed to get done by finishing writing the book, you suddenly find out that you're not even halfway done. Your job has really just begun. Of the many well-meaning suggestions that your fellow writers, agents, editors, or friends may offer, often you will hear that you need to consider hiring an outside publicist, or we sometimes say outside publicist, freelance publicist, because the person that you're working with at the publishing company is the in-house publicist. So, um, so people are going to, some of your friends are going to suggest that maybe you hire someone. But do you really need an outside publicist, um, how can they help you if you um, already have an in-house publicist? And um, if you're self-publishing, can a publicist really do anything for you? Ask 20 people on publishing and you're going to get 20 different answers, but uh, much of what each person will say will be just a variation on a theme. So I'm going to give you my thoughts from what I call my school of publicity. This is how I learned things and this is how I've distilled my 19 years of experience in publishing. First of all, though, I want to hand out what I call two doses of tough love. Number one, no matter how many people you have working on the publicity front for you, there's always a chance that you will get nothing at all, not even something from the trades, that the trades being Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, Booklist, um, did I mention Kirkus Reviews, Choice. So that's just to keep that in mind because th this is not a return on investment game. This is a complete crapshoot. Um, and uh, it's the sad, sad reality. Uh, there are thousands of books published a year. The media are getting thousands of emails a day sometimes, uh, so it's, it's tough. Number two, if you're self-published, 
your chances are even slimmer for getting any kind of significant media. That doesn't mean it's impossible. It's just that I always tell people if you're self-publishing, your money is better spent on hiring someone for marketing to help you identify your audience on social media, getting to perhaps book clubs. There are just other ways to, to connect that I think if you're going to use your hard-earned money, uh, that's the better way to go. So if someone is such a great publicist, uh, why aren't they working in-house? So I can't speak for everyone, but uh, I'm going to paint you a picture. Uh, going freelance is very appealing because the idea is that rather than working on upwards of 30 books or more a year, and don't forget, when you work in-house, you never lose your backlist authors. So they're still contacting you as well, and sometimes they win awards, and it, there's just a lot of stuff going on. So the longer that you're at a company, the, more you're, the bigger your stable is. So you've got this big workload going on, and you're, you're trying to uh, help a lot of people all the time. So here's the deal. <laughs> You've got all this going on, and um, many times when you cry out about your workload in-house, management will tell the publicist that they need better time management skills. <laughs> so to help you prioritize, they might say that the mid-list novel or that history of a medieval priest that you've been working on that you really love is not so important and that maybe you don't need to just do any follow-up for that. You can get the books out. Maybe someone will just email you randomly because they got your press release and got your name on there, but you need to focus on the lead fiction that you're assigned to or the, the top nonfiction that you're working on that's on the list that they've put a lot of resources into. So we are all in publishing not for the money because there is no money really, but we're doing this because we all love books. And so it kind of takes the joy out of the job when you're kind of just become a mailing service for the majority of the books you're working on. So therefore, many in-house publicists are not able to go above and beyond. And if we do, then we're punished for that. And we're told, well, if you think your workload's so bad then maybe you shouldn't do so much for all your books. So therefore, I decided to go out on my own, as have lots of other people. And that way we can actually focus on the stuff that we're working on and do a very limited number of books throughout the year. Um, so how can you take advantage of your freelance slash outside publicist? I have 14 points. I'll try to do them quickly. Number one, plan early. Don't wait until the last minute to decide that you're going to hire someone. I think that you should start 10 to 12 months before your book is going to go on sale. Even if you're self-publishing and you, you insist that you're going to hire someone and spend your hard-earned money on a publicist, you still need to plan out. I think you need to have your timeline to, to reflect a traditional publishing timeline because it's going to be in the best interest of your book. 10 to 12 months, start asking your friends for recommendations. Number two, don't think of you, yourself, and your publicist, your freelance publicist, as being in an us-versus-them situation. Collaboration is key, and there is no need to alienate your in-house publicist or your publisher. No one is trying to make you fail. Sometimes it feels that way to the authors, but no one is plotting against you in meetings. No one is saying that, you know... We don't want this book to succeed. Yes, there might be the conversation of don't put so much time into that book, but it's not, it's not personal. It's, it all comes down to numbers. So anyway, so this is not us versus them. It's a let's work together and see how we can cover as many bases as possible. Sometimes that outside publicist is going to pick up a lot of pieces, and you guys don't need to know every little detail of who's doing what. You just need to know that it's getting done. I worked in-house for 16 years, so I'm very pro-in-house team. They are working really hard. Let's see, what else can I tell you about? Number two, uh, strategize with your publicist about other angles, the, those little things that, you know, your in-house publicist isn't going to have time. So maybe horses are involved in your book. Well, you know, your, your in-house publicist doesn't have time to research horse publications and blogs and podcasts. So your freelance publicist could do that kind of work for you. Number three. Think about your connections and then let your publicity team know that your in-house and your outside publicist, let everybody know what those networks are. Who do you know? Sit down and make yourself a goal of, I'm going to try to come up with 500 people that I know. You might not know 500 people. You might only come up with 10, but maybe those 10 are all, you know, bars of gold. So just think about who you know. 
and then you look at that list and think, oh, yeah, they live next door to Nicholas Kristoff, or they know Kathy Pollitt, or their son writes for BuzzFeed. It just think about what those connections are. Um, and then talk with your publicist, and then they can help you strategize on how to capitalize on that. Okay, so number four. Ask your publisher very early on about how many galleys and finished copies they're going to produce for your book. I have worked with one too many authors who have been gutted because they found out that their publisher was only going to be doing 50 galleys, and they found out like a week or two before that mailing was going to go out. So you need to know ahead of time. Sometimes authors have the ability to say, hey, well, I have enough money to buy 50 more galleys, so we can send out 100 galleys. Sometimes you don't, but you need to know that ahead of time. And then also your outside publicist needs to know so that they know what parameters they're working within. We're all used to working with limited resources, so we just we find other ways. But we need to know, and you need to know, and you don't need to be surprised. Number five, five to six months before pub date, start contacting the people that you know who are from the media or who are affiliated with someone in the media um, to let them know your book is publishing. Okay, but not so fast. First of all, you're not pitching your book to them. You're just saying, hey, I have a book coming out. I know that you work at GQ. Who do you think I should have my publicist send the book to? You're not trying to foist yourself on them. You're not trying to twist their arm and make them feel guilty because they're still not going to be able to do anything for you if they can't do it. So, but you just want to let them know and to use them as that resource, as a resource, like research. You know, think of it as doing a Google search, but with a live person. So you're getting the information from them. Never contact the media directly yourself. They don't want to hear from you unless you know them personally. Can you, you know, do you go golfing with them? Do you, you know, go to the sports bar? How do you know this person? So um, if you don't know them well, then don't contact them. Let your publicist do that. Plus, it's a good cop, bad cop situation. They're, they're going to feel guilty, number one, because they're not going to have an answer for you or they don't want to answer you or they're going to say no and they're going to be forced and they're not going to do that. I get rejected every day, either silently or explicitly by them saying no to me. And, and some days I get lucky and they say yes. But, you know, I'm used to being rejected. And, you know, you guys can, you know, we're here to pad you from that a little bit, you know, the, to lessen the sting. Number six, consult with your publicity team about possible essays and op-eds you can write. Um, this is the one exception where there are times where you might be able to contact the media directly because sometimes they'd rather hear directly from the writer if it's an, a magazine article, if it's an op-ed piece. It just depends. It's all on a case-by-case -case basis. But do that with your, in, your in-house and your outside publicist. Have that conversation with them because they can tell you, oh, you know, no, it's better if I send it, or they'll say, no, you should send it, and this is who we think you should send it to. Number seven, write a self-Q&A in consultation with your publicist. Um, no more than five to seven questions. The media, when they even look at the press materials, because half the time they don't, except to see who is the contact, they're really reading your jacket copy, by the way, but they're not reading the press materials very often. But if they do, they do not want to see a bunch of words and paragraphs. They want it short. They want it fast. So three to five sentences are your max for the answers and not run-on sentences. Uh, so be succinct. Think about those five to seven questions that you wish if you had you know, uh, a press junket, this dream press junket, and everybody was asking you questions. What are those questions you want them to ask you? Think of five to seven of those. Write them down and answer them and give them to your publicist. Um, number eight, watch and read the news. What are the current lead stories? What are the news outlets fixated on at the moment? What stories are on the front page? What do the op-ed sections focus on? What is trending on social media in terms of news? Pay attention because you may have something to say that's relevant to that, but your publicists are not able to read or watch or listen to every single thing out there. So you're your own expert. You know exactly what you need to be listening for. We're doing that too, but you're focused on yourself. You're allowed to be narcissistic, and we have, a, we have lots of other people to also be thinking about. So 
we're relying on you to come to us with, with information. Um, number nine, keep tabs on pop culture, which goes hand in hand with you know, current events. Um, does your book speak um, to anything that is all the rage um, at that moment? Um, unless you're keeping your finger on the pulse of what is current and hip, you are not going to know what's happening, and I might not know either. So pay attention because you may have something that's relevant. Number 10, read multiple articles by the same journalist. I have lots of authors that come to me and say, oh, I really think that Katha Pollitt would love this book, and really I think she should talk about it, and we should send it to her, and you should pitch her, and blah, 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 blah. Well, that's great, except I might be more familiar with what Katha writes, and I might think that there's no way she's, you know, I think we need to focus our energies on something else. So it helps if the author is well-informed about, it's not just a fantasy, like you want to be realistic. You know, you might have to make yourself cry sometimes, but you just have to really think about what's realistic. Does John Stewart, who's not on the air anymore, but, you know, say someone like John Stewart, is he really, you know, do you really think this is possible? It never hurts to pitch, but just in terms of, like, how much you're pushing, because sometimes the authors get very anxious, and they're, like, really pushing us to try to make something happen. And you want them to be spending their energy in the right places. So think about that. Read what they're writing. Read a lot of their articles. Do you like Nick Kristoff? Great. But make sure you read more than one or two pieces that you found really inspiring. Read 30 of those pieces to find a, a pattern. Listen to Terry Gross. Listen to Terry Gross on Fresh Air. And really pay attention to the kinds of things that she tends to bring on the show. Again, we can still pitch Sam Brigger at Fresh Air, who's Terry's producer for books. But in terms of how much you're, you're pressuring yourself and getting yourself worked up and then getting us worked up, just think about how, again, think about the energy and where it needs to go. What is your backstory? Number 11, what's your backstory? Is there anything interesting, anything unique about how you came to write the book? Now, you might find it interesting. I might find it interesting. Not everything is going to be interesting to the media, and I'm going to know that. And, you know, so, you know, you also, not just, you know, any outside publicist, any in-house publicist is going to be able to tell you, well, you know, it's really, it's interesting to me, but they get these kinds of stories all the time, this, you know, triumphing, triumphing over, you know, hardships and th- or this, that, and the other. It, there has to be more, you know, and so sometimes we can help you tease that out. But come to us. Don't be afraid. Don't be timid about it. But, but also don't come to us thinking that it's going to definitely be a great idea. We, we know how to work with the media. So it may seem unique and exciting to you, but still think about your backstory. Maybe you wrote your book in a barn or wrote it in a box. I don't know, but you know, it might be something interesting that, that we can use as a story. Number 12, are you an expert? Broadcast media is always looking for the talking heads who can speak directly to topics that are in the news um, that are part of what we call the news cycle. So let your publicist know when things hit the news. Uh, Again, as I said, we can't watch, see, read, listen to everything, so we need your help to, and that's, again, this is not just your freelance publicist, your in-house publicist team, too. We just need to know. You are the expert. Um, Number 13, is the book going on sale on any particular anniversary? or designated days, weeks, or months, like African American History Month, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Earth Day, et cetera, et cetera, World War II history, anniversary of some kind, that sort of thing. And then I swear I'm almost done. Number 14, do you have access to documents, photographs, sources that no one else can get to? Don't tell us at the last minute or, in like, oh, as an afterthought of, right before the book goes on sale. Like, let us know ahead of time, you know, maybe you, maybe, you know, like the Diane Arbus estate decided they were going to let you have access to something. Well, that never happens. So that's a big deal. We need to know. So think about that kind of stuff, especially if you've written nonfiction or if you've written a fiction book that's based on something that's, that was a real event that, that could be very appealing to certain types of media outlets. So in closing, remember that um, publishing a book can often be an exercise in humility. So surround yourself with professionals who have been through the ups and downs of publishing and can guide you through the highs and lows. There is no magic wand that makes a book a big success. Um, But beefing up your publicity team by bringing on a freelance publicist can be instrumental in the life of the book and the writer.
Thank you, Michelle. Um, I'm going to open it up to the panel, and I'm going to go question by question. And first, let's start with what factors went into your decision to hire an independent publicist, because all of us on the panel had a fairly, I mean, with, with fairly different uh, stories, we all had similar routes to publishing. Um, it, New York houses an in-house publicist, but we all, for some reason or another, one reason or another, went with an independent publicist. So let's hear what circumstances led to that decision. Can we start with Kirker? Sure. Okay. Hi. My book was also an orphan book. There was a, I had an editor who was very excited about it, and then he was phased out, and it was given to some guy. And my book is about children's beauty pageants in the South. It's a novel. And the editor had just written a book about, like, wizards and shit or something. I don't know. <laughs> so he did not care at all about it. And he gave me one note once, and I didn't really agree with it. And then he never spoke to me again, really. He never gave me another note. Uh, he never helped in any way. And so um, the in-house publicist really enjoyed the book and really liked it. But I, it was obvious that they were not going to put any time or any uh, effort into it. And uh, so I knew that if anybody was going to see this, I was going to have to find you know, somebody else to do it. And I did. <laughs> and she was great. Um, it, yeah, it helped uh, tremendously. But I just, yeah, it was because I knew that there was no one there who cared enough to really push it the way it needed to be pushed. My first book was the um, story collection and portraits of a few of the people I've made cry, and it was a. It actually was first published in hardback by University of Massachusetts Press, because it won the Paley Prize in 2009 from AWP, and then Bloomsbury eventually reissued it in paperback four years, about four years later. But I knew that University of Massachusetts Press produced beautiful books, and they're very devoted staff. But being a small press, they only had a certain number of hours of the day that they could and resources that they could offer to each title that they published every year and and at that point I knew absolutely nothing about publicity but I had a good friend who'd worked with the publicist that I hired who's based in Chicago and she said you know just call her and find out if she would be interested in looking at your work if she likes it then she'll probably represent you if she's not too busy so I did and she did end up representing me and it was a very good investment because that book went on to get quite a few reviews and but that was, you know, serendipity. As Michelle said, I've learned with each of my books that you, the previous book or any successes you had with it, that does not mean that your next book is going to do as well. So, you know, it really is an exercise in humility, but we could talk about more about that later. Um, like I mentioned, I was orphaned, and I, I had a pretty sympathetic editor pick me up, but before I hired Michelle, she said, let's just pose a question to your editor. Ask to see the marketing plan. And so I did. And I have a background in corporate marketing in the wine business. So I was like, let me see the marketing plan. And she was like, oh, I don't really have it ready yet. And um, three days later, I get this marketing plan. And the headliner is Mommy Blogs. That was like the height of what they were reaching for with my book. And I, you know, it's a book of literary fiction. And, and I, I told Michelle, and Michelle's like, I think we need to intervene here. And so that's when I brought her on board. I was lucky enough to, I've had a long-term relationship with Michelle. And so we both, my agent, and Michelle both kind of worked with the in-house team to make sure some more things were happening, and, I, and we had to end up pushing back a little bit. And it was discouraging, but it was also um, better to know than not know, because if I hadn't asked Michelle just as my friend before I hired her, I wouldn't have known what the marketing plan was. I didn't, even with my background, it didn't occur to me to ask what the plan was. So... I brought Michelle on board, and we wallpapered the world with the book and got more reviews than I would have had otherwise. Hello. Oh, you guys can hear me? Yeah, okay, good. I guess I should go back to when I, I met Michelle. It was a reading that uh, Jasmine Ward did at uh, NYU, and I don't know if she had just got, maybe she was already nominated for the National Book Award, but anyway, I was like, well, if Michelle is hanging with Jasmine Ward, then, you know, <laughs> I was like, my book's coming out on Bloomsbury. I want you. And she was like, oh, yeah, sure, Mitch. You know, you can be with me, sure. And I know she really didn't believe it, but then I was like, can I have Michelle? And so I did get Michelle when I finally got to Bloomsbury and they got my um, marketing and publicity. And then, you know, we were rolling a couple months and everything was going good and we were playing. And I had these really big plans. And I'm like, yo, let's call Oprah. You got her sale. And, <laughs> you know, all those things. And, <laughs> Michelle's like, no, nah, no, nah, I think she changed the number on me, but uh, let's, <laughs> let's wait on that. And then, 
right before my book is about to come out, Michelle leaves. She's like, leaves Bloomsbury. I'm like, wait, Michelle, we were about to take over the world. What are you doing? And, uh, and then she, uh, she called me back, and she was like, I'm going independent, but I still want us to work together. And so that's how um, we ended up working. So I, almost, I got orphaned by Michelle. I was orphaned <laughs> by Michelle, but then she came back and adopted me. And, and so here we are together. <laughs> All right, what about the navigation between the in-house publicist that's assigned to your book and the, the outside publicist that you hire? I was lucky that my in-house publicist was a friend of Michelle's and had worked with her before, so that came together kind of at the last minute because she was a substitution as well. I, I had a, my agent was at a new agency, my editor left ship, and my publicist quit the book. So, <clears throat> not because of me. Um, so Michelle ended up being very friendly with my publicist, and they worked together as a team. But I'm wondering about what happened with everybody else. And, and the reason for the question is that there does exist sometimes a little testiness between in-house and, and independent publicists that can be smoothed. So it, it doesn't have to be testy, but you might encounter, if you decide to go this route, you might encounter that initially. And so there are some ways to manage that. It was very smooth for me. My experience was great. Katie Bassel at St. Martin's was fantastic. She really liked the book, but she knew that there was no way she was going to be able to give it the attention that it deserved, and uh, they worked great together. I mean, they knew different people, but they knew enough of the same people to where they could really give a push to those certain, in those certain areas. Um, it was, yeah, it was kind of uh, seamless. It really worked well. I had a good experience, too, and I've worked with the same independent publicist and after University of Massachusetts, Bloomsbury published my next books. And I'm, but not Michelle. You didn't work no, I, and Michelle, actually, it was another publicist in-house at Bloomsbury who was assigned, um, Sarah Mercurio, who actually is based in the West Coast because her husband works, I think, in TV um, here in L.A. But the one thing that, I mean, fortunately, Sarah and, and Cheryl, the publicist I hired, get along very well, but I have heard from Cheryl that occasionally... It might take the in-house publicist a long time to share media lists. So the reason why they need to share them is so that they don't submit or they don't carpet bomb like the New York Times. You don't want to send 50 copies of your galley to the New York Times because your publicist in-house sent 20 and then your, private, your independent publicist sent 20. So they have to share information. And if you find an in-house publicist who's either too harried or for whatever reason is just not willing to do the, the share, then that can be tricky. But... I think, I mean, generally, as Michelle said before, it's, I haven't had to be that neurotic, but I do think it's easy to think that, oh, they don't want to, the, the in-house person is just busy with other books, or they don't like me, or they're mad that I hired an outside publicist. Um, I don't think that's the case. I mean, your house needs to sell your books so that they can keep publishing other people and maybe future books by you. So, yeah, I, I mean, generally, it's been smooth for me. It went smooth, but I don't know really. I think I had the benefit of I had a new publicist in-house, and you know, you get a new job, you want to make good on your job. So I think I received the benefit of having a new publicist who was trying to make a good impression. And then also I feel like Michelle probably extended herself to the – I feel like the, the outside publicist probably needs to extend themselves to the in-house publishers to kind of smooth out – that relationship and make them not feel threatened, especially when they're coming into a new position. So I think um, if, if I had it to do over again, I might have said, like, let's go out and eat, you know, so that we all, like, y'all going to have to get together. Look, we're trying to sell a book here. <laughs> um, but but I, didn't, I didn't do that, but I do think that uh, Michelle probably extended herself to, uh, to my publishers. And, and Summer Bloomsbury, since we shout now publicists, Summer, she's great if you ever get her. She's a really good publicist. Um, that's it. What about the kind of plan that your independent publicist produced for you and how the two of you together determine the kinds of things that you could do on your own, like, like Facebook and Twitter and some of the marketing things we touched on at the very, very first and what you shouldn't do on your own? So if, you had, if any of you talked that way, Michelle provided for me. She didn't manage Twitter and Facebook for me, but she provided a list of guidelines and said, go do it this way, which was very, very helpful. And, don't, and then don't do it this way. So I'm just curious about if any of the rest of you work together on a plan that way. Um, well, I've been on Twitter for a while, but I was just, I've just put out like 
you know, dumb jokes, and <laughs> I was never really one to, like, self-promote that way. So that was just difficult for me in trying to get over that and being the guy who's like, hey, you know, buy my book. And But it was not something that I was comfortable with, but, you know, Michelle said, you got to do that. And so Facebook I did, and Twitter... I don't really recall putting together, like, a social media plan. It was just, you've got, you know, do what you can on that. And, you know, she did the rest of the the, the stuff that was, that actually, I think, sold the book. I don't think a single person bought a book because I was tweeting about it. It was all of the other stuff that uh, that, that that she was doing. And I should, just to, just to jump in for a second, that uh, often at the houses, the, the marketing team, um, they're the ones that will talk to you about your social media strategy, you know, how to, how to work that and, and what some of those guidelines are. Some, it's just that some authors, you know, will come to me and they want a little bit more. You know, I just give them my two cents from my little personal peanut gallery, but it doesn't, you know, like the marketing team is much, you know, much more of an expert on that stuff. Yeah, and, and just about St. Martin's, you know, I think they sent out a tweet about my book, so they were not really... <laughs> Like the day it came out in their list of 50 tweets, I think I was in there somewhere. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what their marketing plan was, but it was it was not extensive. One of the things that I think, and I don't know if everyone has this opportunity, but to go into the publishing house and meet the people who are going to be on your team and develop a relationship with them. I mean, I remember. I used to come to Bloomsbury, and I would be sitting in the hall laughing, and people would come out like, is that Mitch in there laughing? And so when that happened, I knew that I had a certain relationship. And it's a lot harder to say, like, we're not going to send out this tweet um, for you, Mitch. (laughs) And the other thing is I probably have sent Michelle, like, I don't know how many, six plans or something. Like, every time something happens, I got, like, a full plan. Like, all right, look, Michelle, we're going to do this and that, and let's do this and that, and let's call this person and that person. And she sometimes would say, like, no, we can't do this, Mitch. Like, we're not. This isn't reasonable. But you have to tell me no. And so I think one of the things, the other thing is just to be ambitious and let them, not to go and reach out to the New York Times every day for, with coffee, but, but to have a plan in effect and to share it with your publicist and then let them tell you what is realistic and what is not realistic. But don't necessarily just depend on someone to, like, give you a plan to execute. Well, one thing that you guys are all talking about in one way or another is just be a kind person. So thank people for doing things for you and, you know, read your friends' books if they're writers and tweet about them and put posts on Facebook. But then as far as the practical details related to the publicity plan for my books, Michelle mentioned, you know, trying to write on spec some essays and getting them published if possible with a, with a glossy or, a, you know, a big market newspaper. I had a piece published in the New York Times um, the month before my last book, Paris, he said, came out uh, in Private Lives, that, that column. And I don't know if it sold any books, but at least maybe a few more people were familiar with my name. And also one thing that I did on my own was I scheduled some of my readings. So, And I had relationships already with a number of bookstores from my previous couple of books. And in that case, too, like thanking them. And in a few cases, I brought little presents when I, if I, you know, had the energy and the time to buy a coffee mug and some tea or something like that and give it to the bookstore owner or her or his um, staff. So that was stuff that, you know, they remembered. And it really, I think, has made them loyal to me. I've noticed that most of my sales are in the Chicago area, in part because I live there, but also because I have good relationships with those bookstores. And the hand selling is actually the key to a lot of books, especially literary fiction, that success is often based on these independent booksellers telling their patrons that your book is good and they should buy it. Yeah, and I can speak to Christine's influence in the Chicago area because when I was living there, when my second book came out, and she set up contacts with all the bookstores for me. So I I wanted to ask you, after I finish, about being a good literary citizen because she's a fine example. When you talk a little bit about writing collateral material around the book. It's, it's wonderful if you can get something placed in the New York Times, but if you can do it for free, there are venues that we all know, like Salon and The Rumpus, who are hungry for content, and they'll, they'll, they're going to put up what you write, um, and they 
the, the struggle for me, I, so I started writing things for Salon and doing interviews with other authors for The Rumpus, and the struggle for me is I don't really want to write the kind of articles Salon wants to put up. So I wrote a few, you know, they wanted to know, you know, what sex was like growing up evangelical, or what, I mean, it was like, you know, they wanted me to kind of expose, 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 and then the trolls would get on and say things. So there's, there's a comfort level, too, but if you, can, if you can get out in front of that so that someone's not just calling you at the last minute saying, hey, Salon wants something for you, from you, you know, put it together. But if you can think about that before your book comes out and have some pieces ready, that could be really helpful. And kind of, like I said, I'd love to write something for the New York Times and be paid for it, but there is ex- tons of exposure online for free, pretty well-respected venues that they look for. But anyway, re- um, talk a little bit about being a good literary citizen, because Christine has a blog, and she interviews authors, and she's very promotional for all kinds of people who come through Chicago and everywhere else, and anyone else too who's who's on the panel who go ahead. Um, I, I mean, most of you guys probably have friends who are also writers, and so when I know someone's got a book coming out, I ask them, "Do you want to do a Q and A for my blog?" And usually, I've read the whole book or I've read most of it, and I can write maybe five or six questions. And then they get it back to me within a couple of weeks, and I post it. I mean, I probably get, like, 50 people looking at it. It's not a big deal. I'm not, a, a, you know, sort of an obsessive blogger at all. But um, I think that helps, and they appreciate it. So I post links to the Q&A on Twitter and Facebook. And I have an author page on Facebook as well as a personal page, which if you don't have that yet, you should probably set it up. And then just invite your friends to um, click, you know, like. And, and – and then I do go to events. I think if you want people to come to yours, you really have to make an effort, and it's exhausting. And my partner's like, are you going out again? You go out every night. Why are you, you know, actually, it's not that bad, but he's like, well, wow, you're home tonight. So, I mean, you do have to bust your ass, basically. And um, maybe you won't, you, I don't think you have to do it into perpetuity, but being present and doing things for other writers, buying their books when you go to their readings, um, even if you already bought it on Amazon, <laughs> it's a good idea to buy another copy and just give it to a friend or family member. So um, I, I think that will build you friends if and keep those friendships and then also just appreciative readers probably. And it doesn't have to be calculating. I actually really like most of my friends' books a lot, so I'm not going to love everything that your friends write, and they certainly don't love everything that I've written, but I genuinely want to help them, and I think they know that, so... That I, that sincerity is a good thing too, and you know that's in the reading series. You, you oh, oh yes, I used to. I don't do it anymore because I've been dividing my time between Urbana and Evanston. But I used to help um, cura- I curated and directed a reading series in Chicago called Sunday Salon Chicago for two years, and I would invite a lot of people. Angela's read for the series, and we can't pay people, but I mean most of the people are local or they're passing through doing a book tour, so they are happy to read and they can sell their own books and. It was, you know, I, I met a lot of other writers, and I was also able to help friends get um, more exposure for their books. And it was, it's just, it's fun, you know, it's a good thing. One thing that I've told people who self-publish is, um, because sometimes they get frustrated and they feel alienated because they can't get a reading at a local bookstore or something like that. And I always tell them, you know, it's it's easy to get completely self-absorbed when you're self-publishing because you feel like it's you against the world. But if you try to create a community with your fellow self-published authors and try to come up with a reading series or maybe work with your local library, I think that's being a good literary citizen as well. If you are pro-self-publishing, then you need to support your fellow authors who are also self-publishing and creating venues for them so that for the future, for your future of self-publishing, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's easy to be very self-centered on the self, you know, in any arena, but especially on the self-publishing side. I don't know what you mean. I don't think any writers are oh, self-centered, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> artists in general. I, I think part of being a good literary citizen, and Christine touched on this, is not just to show up at the independent bookstores when you need something from them, but to have been a community member and a support of them uh, all, all along the way. I, in my community, I live in Napa Valley, and there's a great store in Sonoma called Reader's Books. They often 
feature self-published. They've given me a reading every time I've published a book, but they've also, they do, like, every Wednesday night is community night, and there are memoirists, you know, people who've published a cookbook, people who've published picture books. They're really supportive of writers in the community, self-published or no. And I, I think, you know, the smaller the community, obviously, and the more present you are in the community and active, supporting all kinds of writers, even if you just run a workshop or even if you just create a local blog, I think that can... Um, paying it forward that way uh, comes back to you in, in really valuable ways when you have something out there to promote. Is anything anything else the panel would like to add before I open it up to questions? What questions do you have? I'll repeat it so everyone can hear. Yes, the cost of having an outside publicist. It's a it's a really good question. It's expensive. I would say the range would be on the low end, 10000 on the high end, 30000 depending on what it is that you're wanting to hire the person to do. If you're wanting to go on a tour, that's going to cost a lot of money because it's very time-consuming. Or if you want them for an extended, you know, long, long period of time or something like that. So it's a lot of money. It's a big chunk of money, and there's no guaranteed ROI, return on investment, for that. Um, so you have to make sure that you find someone that you feel really comfortable with and that, that you can establish a level of trust with, um, that they're going to do everything they can with your hard-earned money, that they are trying to earn and uh, hard as well. <laughs> Some people um, say if you publish at a, a small press and your your amount is around you know ten thousand dollars if you're lucky, uh, which is a, a great a book deal. Some people spend all of that on an, on a publicist, especially a debut author. You're only a debut author once, and there tends to be a special kind of attention for debut authors that's never available to you again. So mm-hmm. it might be the time to invest. And oh, go ahead. I was that's what I did. I gave my entire advance to Michelle. Oh no, God! She got every, literally, and your third every child, penny. yeah, <laughs> like Rumpelstiltskin or something. But it, was, <laughs> but it was worth it. It was completely worth it, and I, I would do it again. It was, uh, yeah, I know that I wouldn't have sold as many books if I hadn't done that. So it was, in my mind, it was completely worth it. And you, you know, I've seen people handle it in creative ways, getting the funding. They've done Kickstarters. I know writers who've like, I'm going on a book tour. Or if you do, you know, I mean, there's, you can do stuff like that. You can do sort of like the crowd rise funding and then i mean you can claim it on your taxes so yeah know, there definitely are claim and you can get taxes. arts grants from from states too sometimes like they'll they'll have small amounts of money that they'll disperse maybe like a thousand dollars that you can put toward the publicity of your book so i mean there you just have to be resourceful and you have to be you know obviously energized to do this but it's there are other some sources to help you pay and, and Mitchell, um, so I know I don't want to belabor this too long, but just Mitchell mentioned something else important that um, you want to, when you're talking to freelance publicists, um, you need to talk to them about what their time frame is. Some of us work longer than others. A lot of publicists will only do like uh, two months before pub date and one month after. Um, so like a three months, you pay you know anywhere from ten to however much, you know twenty five, thirty thousand uh, dollars. Whereas you know the, there are some publicists like me who you can you can sign on with me a year before the book goes on sale. I'm going to work with you that same flat fee from. The, the day you come and say, let's work together through one month past the publication date. So that is just something also to keep in mind. As you're researching a publicist, what are the things that you would want us to ask? What are the right questions? Like things like more like that. Like what are the options, mm-hmm. not just pay structure, but also how do you identify someone who really has relationships versus could, could everybody hear that? As you're researching a publicist, what questions should you ask the publicist? So I think you you can always ask them for references. There's you know it's just like any kind of job. Someone if you're hiring someone, uh, you have a company, you're going to check references. You don't have to. You may have gotten it word of mouth. You know a friend of yours may have worked with them, and that was all. That's all you need. But if it's someone you've never met before, you, you're you're well within your rights to say, you know, can can you give me the name of, like, an author you've worked with and maybe someone you worked with in-house. Ask them how long they worked in-house. Um, just because someone worked in-house for only five years, that doesn't mean they don't have enough experience. It's just, you know, just get a feel for what kind of work do they do in-house. I think, you know, as long as they have publishing experience and have worked with authors, then, you know, you have to assume that they have relationships with the media. 
it's a you know it's a crapshoot like any anybody you hire they might be a great interviewer and then they they suck at their job but I mean <laughs> you know some of you are great with interviews but um you know that's one thing you 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 also want to ask them yeah about the time frame what's the, what's their how much do they charge what are there extras are they going to get some kind of surprise bill or something the other things I would say is not so much what you ask for is like listen to what they say if some publicist is saying that they can absolutely promise you they're going to get you reviewed somewhere they're lying I would I would if they stood before me right now I'd call them a liar because there's no way they can know that unless they're well let's just not go there but nonetheless I just don't think that you know I just don't I I would not trust someone who would have the audacity to just say that they can promise you that they're going to get you media it's bull Shaping a book tour, what's, what advice you would give? Yeah. Okay. Um, I would say keep it to cities where you know people or have an established base. And I say that having gone all over the South and read two rooms of 65 people in my hometown and zero people in Memphis. So it, it's like even if you think the subject matter in the region is going to match, unless there's a an event that has a regular audience, like Christine's um, – reading series in Chicago, no matter who's reading, the same like 20 people in the Chicago literary scene show up every night. So it's a, it's a done deal. It's a great bet. And there are a lot of reading series with regular audience participation like that in certain cities. So if you can, if you can plug into one of those, then, then you might go somewhere where you don't have connections. Otherwise, you're on the horn saying, you know, I know five people in the greater Atlanta area all show up that night and bring, like, drag two people there, and we'll all go out to dinner afterwards. But, mm -hmm. Michelle. And also, yeah, and, and make sure that they're all going to buy the book, and they didn't buy it on Amazon. <laughs> so, it, I mean, nothing against Amazon, but just saying that if you're going to be dragging people to the bookstore, if they're not going to buy your book, they need to buy a book at the bookstore. So, you know, that's the whole point of the bookstore also hosting these events is they want to drum up business and they want to create, you know, a, a broader customer base. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is I've told authors for years, do not have rock and roll star dreams when it comes to book tours. It's, you want to talk about exercise and humility? Go on a book tour. <laughs> do it and come back to me and tell me all your horror stories. <laughs> Yeah, bouncing back from orphan books or from books that haven't done well. I think that is an especially contemporary challenge because, it, like I mentioned at the beginning, it used to be you know you had an editor who believed in you, understood that a writer would develop over the course of his career and that this was an investment. It's a little bit different nowadays. I'm trying to think of how I would answer that question, feeling like I'm kind of in that situation right now. Um, I, I, on the one hand, I'm reconciled. I have, a, I have a good day job, but I'm reconciled to the fact that I might go with a different kind of publication next time. You know, I, I went with a New York house before. I'm ready to go with an independent press who would really take my book seriously, and, and I might be one of ten books they're publishing in a year instead of one of 500, um, and that may mean less money. So, so those are considerations I'm thinking about making. Also, just being very upfront with my agent about what I want negotiated ahead of time. You know, you know, negotiate foreign rights ahead of time, negotiate this, maybe take less money for, um, for more things set contractually. Um, any, anybody else have a... No, I think that's, that's right. It's, you know, it's... Um... I worked on my book for seven years, and I had this this editor who absolutely loved it, and then called me one day and said that he'd been let go. And I talked, like I said, I talked to this new guy, and you know, I didn't. I thought, oh well, it's fine. It's the same house, and it's the same. You know, they bought it. They must, and they're still going to publish it. They must like it, but it's not. And it was St. Martin's, and they're really into volume. I mean, I I don't. I don't know how many they publish a year, but I, a thousand. It's so many books. And I would do the exact same thing, I think, if I were going to do this again. Because it, you know, it, the second book is almost, it's harder, I think, because especially if your first book didn't sell that well. So I would do the same thing. I would go for a smaller press. I would go for uh, less money up front. And um, 
and you know, hopefully find someone who believes in it, who's you know been there for a while. I think my guy had been there six months when he brought it. I was the only book that he that he brought in and sold, um, or bought. So yeah, I would do it. Uh, I would do it entirely differently. I would go much smaller. University Press, is, if the staff is small, maybe only two or three people. You know, my experience with knowing people who have done that has been every once in a while at a University Press, they have a, a small load, and you hit one who has a fantastic publicist. Um, I would try to ID that beforehand, but Michelle, maybe you can speak to that. Last time we did this panel, we actually had someone from University Press talk about publicity efforts, mm -hmm. and that was interesting. Yeah, and, and the person we had on the panel last year, she did say, you know, oftentimes the University Press is relieved if the author hires someone because they are so stretched. I mean, you think the New York houses are stretched thin. These, you know, University Presses are, you know, incredibly um, stretched thin. So I've worked on quite a few University Press books, and every press was just thrilled that there was somebody else, you know, helping. And they were so, you know, especially I can remember Vanderbilt University Press was just, they were just so grateful, like anything I needed, they did it, uh, you know. So I do think that you want to talk to the press. It's like any other house, like they might feel threatened by that. But, you know, if you start to feel like their intentions are good, but they're, they're just not able, you can, you can, you have a sense. So you need, you know, the, the minute that you're feeling like, the, you know, some balls are being dropped or that, you know, it's not quite what they, you know, they had sold to you in terms of how much they could do. The sooner you feel that, then jump on it and, and start talking to some publicists. Don't let it go too long. You're just going to be resentful. Yeah. And well, and with the press too, make make sure you know because if you if you publish with the university press, you're eligible for so many wonderful awards. So just make sure you've somebody there is submitting because sometimes you can submit yourself, and sometimes it has to be submitted by the press. Make sure someone there is submitting to all those awards because once you get an award, publicity gets a lot easier. Um, Christine, and then I'll get Jan. Okay. And I was going to say, Michelle mentioned earlier about knowing how many galleys the press is going to publish. I think. UMass only printed maybe like 15 or 20 total. And then I actually, I think eventually they printed more, but I paid for some galleys too. And you can ask them to print more and pay them. I mean, again, it's more money out of your pocket, but if you get them in the hands of the right people, then you know they can review them or a bookseller will set up an event with you or something like that. So I think you know it, the galleys are so important. Jan. Okay, so when a public when a publishing house sends you or does not send you to events like book book fairs, who makes that decision? Is that publicity? Is that marketing? It's a great question. Yeah, so she, you know, there's the you know the Southern Independent Booksellers Association has their trade show every year. The Northern California Independent Booksellers Association, they all have their trade shows mostly in in the fall. And then there's the book festivals as well. Like uh, Los Angeles has their book festival coming up. So the purse strings are held by marketing. You know, most houses, publicity is an arm of marketing. And so marketing, it just depends on what conversations are being had. But they limit how much. And sometimes an author will send themselves. So, you know, sometimes it's just that they've flown themselves to Nashville for, you know, SEBA or for the Southern Festival of Books or something. And every other trade show that's going on. So... I don't know how to answer that because it's all so subjective and it just depends on how generous the house is with their trade show money. I just have noticed, I've just found over the years, when I first got into publishing in the late 90s, we sent all kinds of authors to the trade shows and all, a bunch of us would go to the trade shows. And then, you know, like starting around, I don't know, I'd say like around 2005 or so, they started to dwindle and they were cutting back on how many people they were sending and even having a booth and all of that stuff. The bottom line is, if they're not sending you, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that they don't care about the book. It doesn't mean that just because you go, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a big success. Uh, you know, there's lots of authors who don't go to the trade shows, and their books do well. So it's, 
try not to take it to heart. You know, one more thing about um, um, events is if you can, if you're an author and, and you know someone whose book is coming out, even from another publisher at about the same time, pairing up and managing event, working with a publicist to manage events together almost always brings in more people to those events. There's a poet, Van Kana, who, and she and I went to school together years ago, and we had books coming out together at the same time. We've done a number of events together, and that you know, creates a, a larger crowd because they're her resources and my resources. Uh, the writers, Vendela Vida and Julie Oringer, had debut fiction coming out at the same time, and they were at the same publishing house, and they sent them on a, a double tour, and it was it was very successful. Um, the books had a little bit to do with each other, but not a whole lot, but they were two authors launching their careers. You know, related to that, Michelle, I'm curious, is it usually just the lead titles? You guys probably know that term, but if not, it just means that the publisher usually picks one or two titles per season to really put a lot of money behind for the promotion, so it's a lead title for that house. Is it usually the lead title authors that get sent to the book expos and things like that? Uh, say for Book Expo America, yes. It's, the, it's usually the, the big lead titles. Or if, if BEA has been in New York so many years now, but this year it's in Chicago. So, you know, they, they're probably having their local authors, local Chicago authors. Or if an author has strong ties, say, to the South, and they're going, you know, they would be open to, I, I mean, I just, you know, I was in so many meetings that, you know, that, that would be part of the conversation. Okay, well, this person grew up in Jackson, Mississippi or something, and maybe we should send them to SIBA, or maybe we should send them to the Southern Festival of Books. Or the author's writing about the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, so then that's all part of the conversation, but it always comes down to money. So, yes, the lead title for BEA, but sometimes they, you know, to get the lead title authors in front of, you know, booksellers, they will send them to some of the trade shows. But for the regional trade shows, it doesn't have to be a lead title at all. What role does the agent have in all of this is the question. Zero. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, I've had a different experience, but I think it really depends on how important you are to your agent. And I know that sounds very cynical, but I think that's a lot of it. I think some agents are very good about placing their authors in different contexts. Like they get them gigs at seaside writers conferences or they they go out of their way to promote a particular writer if they have like 50 writers there's going to be a few who they love and they might like everyone but there's a few that they love and they're probably going to do special things for them so but also if you have a problem it's better to go through your agent than to be harassing your publicist or your editor so yeah i think the relationship that you need the most in the house is the editor cuz they are the one that translate all of your concerns and grievances to the rest of the departments. And something that I didn't hear mentioned, and maybe I missed it, is um, when we were talking about going to those other like trade shows and book expo and book festivals, that you should do the research of knowing what those are. It sounds like you already did, but you should know what they are, and then bring it to them, not wait for them to say, oh, here's three that you could go to if you had a budget. And so I think it's a really good idea to like look at local authors or authors that you think are writing in the same genre as you and look at their tour schedule and see where they've been and what bookstores they go to and then, you know, kind of develop your dream tour and then take it to them and say, you know, what's the possibility of me going here? I'm really, really an advocate of being um, proactive rather than letting them bring it to you. International venues like the Frankfurt Book Fair, I, I've never been. The 16 years I worked in-house, we never sent any authors to the international shows. The, the in-house staff would travel there, a lot, mostly editorial, but n we never sent authors there. Yeah, it's later than you think. <laughs> so, so ask the questions early. I think that's really important, too. And also, kind of like what Mitchell's saying, you're going to hear the no, and don't be afraid of the no. I think it was Rob Spillman at Tin House who said something like, you know, uh, that he made a comparison. I think he was talking about gender, but he made the comparison like, you know, we reject 
X amount of, of male writers and we always hear back from them. We reject X amount of female writers and they never submit again. I mean, it, being a writer, you just, I think, you, on, at every level, you know, from the initial rejection to the disappointments that happen with publishing, really getting used to the no and, and persevering anyway. She's saying that she interviewed several outside publicists. She was being published by a small press and that they all told her that it was a waste of her money to hire them because the press was so small. I can't necessarily comment specifically because I'm not sure what the, you know, what the press was or how limited those resources were that they were you know, making these judgment calls on. If they're only producing 10 galleys, there's not a whole lot publicists can do with 10 galleys and and as much as the marketing departments like to tell us publicists that we can be pushing e-galleys the majority of them do not love e-galleys they want a physical book they want a physical galley they want a physical catalog and they can't get those anymore and it's hurting us and we can't seem to get the marketing departments to understand that and I don't work in-house anymore so I don't I don't get to bitch about it but I like to bitch about it when I can. So here I am. So, you know, the, it, it just depends. So, like, if you've got 10 galleys, I mean, I can put together a list of 100 contacts to reach out to and say, you know, would you like an e-galley? Maybe one person will come back to me, maybe two. But I could send out 100 galleys, and maybe only one or two people will come back to me. So it, I just know for sure, though, if I only have 10 physical galleys and I'm going to send out 100 emails, I know for sure that my hands are really tied behind my back with a book when I can at least have it visible in front of people, then sure, that's, they're right that there's not much they can do unless you're able to not only pay a publicist a, a crap load of money, but then also you know, invest money in paying for galleys. And, and sometimes that small press will say, well, you also had to pay for the postage for that mailing because we don't have enough money to, to do that. So if you want to do it, great, but you have to pay for the galleys. You've got to pay for the postage. Some of them will say you have to you know, pay for the labels that we're going to put the addresses on. I mean, they're just so strapped. So it's staples. Yeah. You, uh, that, that was on somebody's contract, too, the staples. For the, for the <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Yeah. So, you know, so you, you really do, when you're, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, working with a small press, you just want to make sure that you know up front. That's why I say ask early. Ask what the resources are going to be so that you are not surprised and crying and upset and feeling like the world is against you. Just you need to know up front. And, um, you know, so I'm sorry that they weren't able to. And, and then maybe the, the solution is that you can only get one thing. So maybe you hire a marketing person to help you with your social media and to help you identify book clubs and other ways that you can try to you know, find an audience, but it, it might not be finding an audience through the media. We are out of time. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for coming. And you can find this on a podcast if you'd like a transcript or a record of it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.